Peacefully beneath us, and seeming the far banks in long yellow shelves, the terraces of an unseen village are ripening with corn. The slopes flame with the reds and purples of late spring, with shrubs I do not know. Giant walnut trees appear, and silvery aromatic shrubs, while overhead the mountain peaks gather in jagged crenellations and seem to enclose the place in a private peace. We are through the village almost without knowing. Granite boulders overshadow dwellings frailer than they. Cottages of dry stone walls and bleached timbers sunk among the igneous rocks. They look half-deserted, mellow and pastoral above their fields, so that as we go on high above the river, past rice paddies and a little shrine to Shiva, I imagine this a valley of Arcadian quiet. Then a man joins us on the path. He is vivid with troubles. His jacket is patched, his trainers split. He fires a volley of questions at the Sherpa. How can he get out of this place? There's nothing for anybody here. His family can't support itself on its patch of rice field. It isn't enough. His eyes spear us out of a sun-blackened face. He follows us for miles. He cannot bear to let us go. We who carry the aura of a wider world. He has never been to Kathmandu, never left this region. But rain has loosened the earth around his house, and it is sliding down towards the river. I am fifty-six now. My life is too poor. My son and daughter-in-law want to buy a new horse, but we cannot afford one. A horse is forty thousand rupees. Yet this dirge comes with a hardy sparkle, as if he were talking about other people— He grins with disordered teeth. Their horse is old. It will die. Of course. This is a cruel region in a poverty-stricken land. Bitter winters and narrow, rock-strewn earth. Arcadia is falling to bits as he speaks. The farm terraces are dropping behind, and above us the naked rock is bursting through the green hillsides in huge, serrated shoulders. Sometimes the track lifts precipitously on steps hewn sheer from the cliff face, or ascends on rubble stairways where a stumble will pitch us into the abyss. At one of these bottlenecks we find the rock daubed red with the Maoist rebel emblem, a hammer and sickle circled beside a swastika, here an archaic symbol of good fortune. But the gorillas themselves have gone. For ten years they paralyzed this region, and would politely leech for money the few foreigners who ventured in. They took over thirteen thousand Nepalese lives. But now, three years later, with Kathmandu's royal dynasty swept away, they are jostling for power with the decrepit politicians in the capital, and their old slogan, Follow the Maoist Path, is flaking from cliffs and walls. At last the farmer turns back, waving buoyantly, his voice fading among the rocks. We have no king now. We have nothing. And then, as if, after all, he might follow us to the end. Where are you going? When the Sherpa cries back, Mount Kailash, the name echoes down the river like a broken secret. The farmer does not hear it. It is the noise of somewhere imagined or hopelessly far away. And so in the West it still seems. 
the most sacred of the world's mountains, holy to one-fifth of the earth's people, remains withdrawn on its plateau like a pious illusion. For years I had heard of it only as a figment. Isolated beyond the parapet of the central Himalaya, it permeated early Hindu scriptures as the mystic Mount Meru, whose origins go back to the dawn of Aryan time. In this incarnation, it rotates like a spindle at the axis of all creation, ascending immeasurable miles to the palace of Brahma, greatest and most remote of the gods, and plunging as deep beneath the earth. From its foot flow the four rivers that nourish the world, and everything created, trees, rocks, humans, finds its blueprint here. In time, the mystical Meru and the earthly Kailash merged in people's minds. Early one